Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today, we have with us Andi Kolber. She is a therapist based out of Castle Rock, Colorado, which is just south of Denver, and she is an author as well. She's written for a wide variety of outlets, and now her first book has just come out. It is titled Try Softer, and she is with us here today to talk not just about the book, but all that she is learning and all that she has learned that led her to write the book. So, Andi, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you so much. It's, it's really good to be here. Yeah, well, as we begin, tell us a little bit, what should our listeners know about you as we get started? Yeah, so many things I could say. Um, the first thing that is kind of fun is the room we are sitting in right now. Um, it used to be called the Temple Event Center. Yep. Um, and so my husband and I actually got married here 13 years ago. And so it's just fun to reminisce as we're sitting here and just because it was a really special and important day in my story for yeah. for lots of different reasons and you know a part of it we'll probably talk more about my story in the in the podcast but um part partly it just really marked a transition from growing up in a really a dysfunctional and, and chaotic family. And that was a time when I began to make some choices that really changed the trajectory of my entire life. Hmm. And I think about it um, as I look at the stage and my, where my husband and I were standing, I remember him saying to me, Andy, take a picture. Uh. Turn around and take a picture in your mind of this, of this moment right now. And that was so important because at that point I had no idea what mindfulness was or what it meant to be really present. Yeah. But that's exactly what we were really practicing in that moment. And I'm so grateful for that because it, um, it's sort of like, it, it was like almost like prophetic of like what uh, so much of the next part of my life would be like to learn how to really be in the spaces that I was at. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I could see it on your face when you walked in the room. Mm. You like lit up. You're like, I got married here. Yeah, it's yeah, it's so special. And now we're recording a podcast. A little less special. <laughs> <laughs> still fun though, and yeah. still fun to be in the space for sure. Oh, good. Well, uh, t- talk a little bit about the book. In the intro, mm-hmm. that it's titled "Try Softer." You tell the story, um, which points toward why you named it "Try Softer," and and. Uh, it was born out of a conversation with your supervisor. Can you tell us a little bit about that conversation? Yeah. So, so my supervisor, um, I'm so grateful for him. He was just this really, um, and still is, just this really gentle man, and and his name is John. And I had been a, a therapist for a couple years, and I was just, I was working so hard. I really wanted to be a great therapist, you know. And I, I have a big heart. I care a lot about people. But at that time, it's like I never had learned how to care about people in a way that ultimately, like, I didn't so take on their stuff mm. that it would essentially, like, affect me almost too much. And so what would happen is, is I would lose myself um, in almost like in my work, in my caring, yeah. I would lose track of my own internal experience. And, and I know like oftentimes in, in Christian spaces, it's like, lose yourself, you know, like self-forgetfulness. And, yeah. and, and this, it's not to say there's not um, some truth in that. But I think from a psychological, from a neurobiological standpoint, my body had been wired in the family I grew up in to be overly attuned to others Mm. and to not attune to myself. 
And this is a really big deal because in order for us to know how to do things like regulate ourselves, like our emotions, or know when we've had enough, or like when things are getting to be too much, or maybe even to use our voice or to set boundaries, we actually have to keep track of ourselves. Like we have to stay with ourselves. Yeah. And so I didn't have that. I didn't have those, I didn't have that internal framework that allowed me to do that. And so that's really what John was getting at that day, that it was like, he was not asking me to be hard-hearted towards my clients. He wasn't um, telling me, you know, that, just stop caring, they'll be fine. (laughs) He was, yeah, you know, like, wouldn't that be a great therapist? Um, (laughs) Like, he was inviting me to observe myself and see if there was a different way for me to care. Hmm. If I could hold the pain differently with them and with myself. Yeah. And so that's the day he asked if instead of trying harder, I could try softer. Hmm. And you followed up to John's suggestion with these words. And I'm reading now from uh, the beginning of the book. You say, John's suggestion didn't sound like an awesome option because what did it even mean? All I had ever learned was how to try harder. If I didn't push, everything would be terrible. Everything would fall apart. The suggestion that there could be another way made my body feel tense with anger, a reflection of my 12-year-old self, a girl riddled with the toxic stress of trying to keep everything together while her home life was constantly imploding. Sure, John, trying softer sounds nice, but trying harder is how you survive. And so a couple of things, right from the start, the vulnerability, like you turn that Mm. volume up, which I love, but Mm. um, I imagine... As you felt those words, reflect on those words, wrote those words, you're speaking for how so many people feel. Um, And I'm curious, first, why do you think so many people feel like trying harder uh, is the way forward? Why are we so intent on that? Yeah, um, I think this is a a really important question. And, And I think to answer it well, I have to almost step back and come from a, a even deeper view of, of us as people. Yeah. And, and I would say from, especially because I, I work a lot from what I would call a trauma informed lens. And what I mean when I say that is in, in my work and in just who I am as a person, I'm always taking into account the fact that all of us have a story and that story literally lives in our body. And that and the way that we show up in the world is informed by the story. Mm. And, and within that story, many of us have wounds. Yeah. And that, those wounds can present themselves as both big T trauma, so PTSD, yeah. and little t trauma. So, so what's significant here to understand, I'll just define trauma really quickly, how I see it, mm-hmm. is that trauma is any experience that overwhelms our nervous system and our ability to cope. And so what happens is, is that the experience that we're having isn't able to get fully processed through our body. And so in some instances and with some experiences, that's going to essentially create PTSD. And then in other instances, maybe because um, it's not as catastrophic, but it's still something we're not able to fully process. That's what becomes little t trauma. And so... The reason I think that this really matters, this question, why do we try harder? Well, in the book, I talk talk about it, a really specific term, I call it white knuckling. Mm. 
And uh. I believe white knuckling is rooted in a trauma response. And so when we think about the stories we hold in our bodies, maybe, maybe we grew up in systems or families or even a culture yeah. in which we learned the only way to be loved is to divorce yourself from your body. The only way to be loved is to push yourself past your limits. The only way to be loved is to over-accommodate yourself to others because to be your actual self, to say what you actually need, um, may in some way make you physically, emotionally, psychologically unsafe. Hmm. And I think, you know, I think it's worth saying here that if you're a kiddo who's experienced these things, um, it's going to take a lot less for a kid to experience little t trauma than it is for an adult. Yes. So if we're experiencing chronic experiences where we feel shamed, not enough, constantly like our parents aren't um, there for us when we're in experiences where we are literally wired to need our parents, that's going to become little t trauma. So I guess that the long answer to your question, yeah. why do we try harder? I believe it's rooted in these nervous system states that are wired into us that teach us this is the only way to be. Yeah. And there's a sense in which a lot of this can be unconscious. Um, our body system, our nervous system shifts unconsciously to respond to what feels like threat. Hmm. So if you, if you have grown up in a system or in a family or in situations where this is how you learn to survive, this is how you learn to get what you needed is by white knuckling, by trying harder. It's no wonder right. that we become adults who get into other systems. And even though the threat isn't as severe, our body has learned that we really don't have a choice. And the only, the only way that we actually start to have a choice I believe, is actually bringing those things up to our conscious with what I would call compassionate attention and beginning to listen and say, what would you need to feel like you would have enough support so you didn't have to try so hard all the time? Yeah. Well, can, I'd be curious, what's an example? Uh, maybe it's from your life. Maybe it's <laughs> from uh, something that's more common to everyone. Because I feel like when you talk about the small T trauma, um, I'm sitting here listening to you going, uh-huh, yep, there was that, and there was that, there was, this happened yesterday. <laughs> um, but what would be some examples that, of trying harder? What does that look like day-to-day for, mm-hmm. for adults, for teenagers, maybe for those who are listening, for even younger kiddos? Yeah. So I think a really common one might be, like, let's just take an adult who's experienced in their childhood that any time they didn't um, meet the perceived expectation, maybe they experienced a lot of shame yeah. uh, from their, their family of origin. Like, um, I can't believe that you weren't able to get the grades. And, or if they spoke up from themselves, it's kind of like, how dare you think that you could ever speak up to me? And so there's this constant um, refrain that you meet this one way of being or else. Yeah. You, you will suffer the disconnection of the people that you need the most. So you take that same adult and you put them into their adulthood. And let's say they're in a a work environment in which there's this very like achievement oriented, um, the people who matter and and who get any type of attention are, you know, these are the high output performers. Well, that same person 
even if their boss is not maybe shaming them, yeah. but they are, they are maybe overly attentive to cues that might feel similar to shame. What that person may then do is actually shame themselves. And, and so what then they're doing is they're ignoring their body and, and they're not taking lunch and they are not getting enough rest and they're not saying, hey, well, I'm getting, I'm getting past my capacity. Yeah. And so this chronic inability to attend to their needs uh-huh. can build up in our bodies and that can come up in different ways. It could look like panic attacks. It could look like just chronic anxiety. It may end up looking like depression because Mm. our nervous system is like, that's it. (laughs) I can't handle anymore. Right. And so it's like, these are how these things over time can, can build. But to just answer that in a fuller way, you know, like I would say just general examples of little T trauma can be things like grief or transitions. It could be feeling betrayed by a friend. It could be being bullied. It could definitely be racism or different types of discrimination. Um, It could be experiences where we just, I think especially in childhood, where we really needed our parents. Yeah. Maybe it was a terrible day at school. Maybe it was being bullied. And then they, you didn't have the support of not only them just as a person, but literally their nervous system. As kids, we're designed to need the support of another nervous system to allow us to move through that painful experience yeah. so it can fully process in our body. Fascinating. And you, you've, you've talked about the family a bit. You've talked about even, uh, mentioned a little bit about your family. I'd be curious... Um, you, you use the phrase, the family I grew up in, referencing kind of how you learned, in a, what, in a sense, how to be mm-hmm. in this world. Mm-hmm. And I've heard from in different places, and I'm not incredibly familiar with it, about how it seems like each family system, which always can be different, assigns someone a role. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that they're supposed to play that role. Mm-hmm. Um, are those some of the ways that we learn to try harder? Is that some of the ways we learn to cope or to be in the world? How, is, how might that be related? Yeah, absolutely. I think where that typically tends to uh, be most true is when one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, one of the greatest needs we have as kids and just as people is that um, we need sort of our parents and our safest, most secure attachments to prioritize connection and love and compassion before anything else. Hmm. So before any type of learning can occur, we need our bodies to be in a place where they're responsive um, to any type of learning. And, and many families have that backwards. Um, many, many of us have experienced, um, you know, any type of learning that we may need driven by shame or driven by fear. Yeah. And, and so the reason I bring that in is because typically the more, that gets more severe the more dysfunctional the family system. Hmm. And so, for example, I grew up in a family where um, one of my parents was an alcoholic and the other parent had really significant unaddressed addiction and mental health issues. And so what happens um, in this type of system is that everyone revolves around the biggest issue, like in order yeah. for the system to function, because every system wants to try to make, it's like water. Water's like, how do I get through? 
you know? Yeah, yeah. The same is true with a system. A system will become adaptive to even in what can be perceived as unhealthy ways to just keep working. So this is how roles in a family start to happen. Um, When we, for for example, for me, I was very parentalized as a kiddo, meaning I, I acted as an adult. Um, I, had, I was aware of things that were far beyond my capacity to um, understand. And yet I figured out ways to sort of deal with that. And that's its own form of trauma. Yeah. But um, so there's ways in which kids can become sort of, they can become scapegoats and they can become the cheerleader. Like if everybody's just happy, like maybe, like if we all just walk on eggshells all the time, maybe everything will be okay, you know, or there will be, um, you know, sometimes it, people will say the enabler. There's, um, there's all these different things that come up, but the main idea behind it is it's just to keep the system rolling. And so we absolutely, like folks who have learned to take care of their parents mm-hmm. are going to probably be folks who more easily go into a place of that try harder white knuckling. Yeah. Um, but then I wouldn't be surprised that they also have moments where they're totally disconnected from themselves and dissociated because nobody can stay in hyper arousal or that sort of fight or flight all the time. Right. And you, you talk about this and you've alluded to it, but you, you talk about it out of your own experience because you're not <laughs> writing only as a therapist. Right. You're also writing as a trauma survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd love to hear you talk to, uh, just a little bit about what has your journey been like? Mm. And you've already mentioned it a couple of times and I imagine you'll bring it up, but um, you've talked about our bodies and how our mm. bodies um, mm-hmm. hold this, that, uh, that somatic side of us, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love that's like, I've probably 25 questions <laughs> in one. It's um, okay. Yeah. But yeah, I'd be curious about what you've learned um, mm-hmm. through that experience, what, what you've learned about the integration of our body, soul, spirit, all of those mm-hmm. things, and, and how mm-hmm. that's led you to a place of healing and, and, and informs the work that you do as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, really, I'll say this first is that try softer really began as a love letter to my younger self. Hmm. Um, And I, every time I say that, it gives me almost just a little tear because it really is um, for me, when I really began this work, what I, what I was wanting is that I realized that I didn't have, I've never seen in the, um, in the, in sort of the world, the type of exact resource that I've been looking for. And not to say yeah. that there aren't good resources out there, but I, I felt this need to really address from multiple facets the complexity of what it's like to come back to yourself, mm. to heal. A lot of times I use that term, come back to yourself, because I really believe that's sort of what it feels like to be whole is that we feel connected to our full and true self. Yeah. And that allows us to connect with God and others. And so there's this really beautiful reciprocation that happens when we are really back home in, mm. in our own self. Um, and so this book, this work really began as, as really looking back probably 15 years ago when I had white knuckled so much of my life. Like from the outside, um, frankly, I think people thought I was doing great. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I had been a great student. I played college basketball. Um, I got really good grades. Um, I was a go-getter. 
like people, I got tons of affirmation. And, and it's not to say those things, to some extent, I'm grateful for them. It's not to say that those are bad things. But what, what was confusing is that on the inside, I experienced myself um, as very anxious, as feeling really alone, um, as feeling like I didn't know how to regulate many of the things, the emotions that would come up in my body. And so I, I experienced this profound disconnect between the outside and the inside. And it was even more confusing because I felt like no one really validated. I had no language to validate that what I was experiencing mattered. It was like, because I looked okay on the outside, Yep. I just never heard that my pain honestly mattered. Mm. And, so, and so I just kept going. I just kept white knuckling. And, um, and a lot of the time that sort of worked for me until it didn't. Yeah. Until, until I, I think what, you know, this conversation with John early in the book was a huge turning point. But I think the thing that caused a, maybe even a deeper shift was becoming a mom. Mm. And it was like, I couldn't live out of different, um, it was like, I couldn't just be like counselor on the and home on the anymore. It was like, all of a sudden, I needed to be fully me with yeah. this little person who had so many needs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was exhausted and she didn't sleep. I love my, my Matias so much, but I, I did not sleep. We didn't nap. Nursing didn't go well. Nothing was working. And all the strategies that had allowed me to survive to that point no longer worked. Mm. And I really got to this place where it was like I couldn't compartmentalize my pain anymore. And I think that was probably the deepest invitation I've ever had to engage my wounds and my pain um, even more. Yeah. And, and, and I'm so grateful. And, and it, it's, it's been extremely, it's been the hardest work I've ever done yep. to learn to be gentle with myself. Um, I think it's funny sometimes when people characterize this work as easy. <laughs> Um, or like, ooh, you're just being so easy on yourself. Char characterize the sort of like word journey as easy. Well, like like self compassion or gentleness. I, there are oh. times when people are like, well, isn't that just letting yourself off the hook? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Well, if someone says that, and by the way, I'm saying this probably to myself and Andy, mm. and for those of you who are listening, if someone says that, it's probably someone who's not done the work. And I don't say <laughs> that in a um, derogatory or patronizing way, but yeah. It's yeah, and I think you're exactly right. I think, I think we hear this message when we're ready to hear it. Yeah. You know, and I think it's important. One of the things I really try to talk about and, and write from in the book is honoring the strategies that we used to survive. Hmm. For me, white knuckling, it's certainly not how I want to live now, but it literally helped me survive. And I am grateful. Like, I am grateful that God created our bodies to, to, keep, to, to be able to adapt. Just in sometimes situations that are horrible. They're yeah. terrible. And yet we are created to figure out, like, our body is working for our good. Like, sometimes I think it's so easy to be like, oh, my body. Oh, I'm so angry. Why are you so frustrated? And it's like, oh, no. 
The beauty of our bodies is they are literally constantly saying, how can I help you get through this? How can I help you survive? And sometimes that literally means that our body chooses to help us dissociate or disconnect, or even maybe we experience flashes of anger or the feeling like we want to run. And it's not to say those are the ultimately always the best decisions. Right. But if we can honor that it's coming from a place not of, like our bodies are not trying to manipulate us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not angry at us. They're saying there is a threat. We're perceiving a threat. And because we're perceiving a threat, we're trying to tap into your resources to help you just get through this, this experience. And so I think, you know, for folks who are listening, I just would want to encourage you know, no matter where you are on your own journey, I think that one of the big parts of, of learning to try softer or what I sometimes call it, pay, paying compassionate attention to yourself is, is really to come from that place. Like, how can you look back on your story and say, gosh, that was, that was a really tough situation. Yeah. I, I, I can't believe I made it through that. Like, is there ways that you can recognize um, that maybe even if you didn't do it perfectly, and even if there are things that you don't love about how you handled situations, can you look underneath that and see that maybe you were doing truly the best that you could yeah. at the time? Yeah. And what, 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 ha, what, is, what does a process look like? I'm not going to say the mm. process, because um, in my experience, I'm learning even with my, in my own journey, uh, and in the journey that so many others undertake, that there's mm. different processes. But, and I ask from the perspective that we're such integrated beings. Mm. Um, and so as you talk about our bodies are helping mm-hmm. us survive, mm-hmm. our bodies are doing that out of a, something happening oftentimes in our minds and our, in our souls and our hearts. Um, so what does that process look like of healing or a process look like um, mm. recognizing that really it's a journey from disintegration into being reintegrated as a whole human being. Yeah. Well, I think one thing I might want to just explain as I'm answering that question is something called the window of tolerance. Um, and this mm. is a term that essentially it's a, it's a psychological term, but I find it to be a really helpful um, framework for people to begin to understand that all of us have a window, a range of physiological and emotional arousal that we can sort of, we can tolerate before our body goes into either fight or flight or into freeze or dissociation or what it may even look a little bit like depression at times. And the reason... Fascinating. Yeah. The so, window of tolerance. Mm-hmm, yes. Okay. So there's a couple things I just want to say about that. First, that when we go into, so when someone goes outside of their window of tolerance, like typically we first go to fight or flight and then we go to freeze, our body prioritizes these reactions in this way. But what happens when we go to fight or flight is that our prefrontal cortex goes offline. And the same is true with freeze. Um, and help us understand, what, what, what function does the prefrontal yes. cortex serve? So the prefrontal cortex is the very top of our brain. And it's so sometimes I just refer to it as higher order thinking. And okay. this is the part of our brain that essentially can integrate all of who we are. 
Now we need all of our body and brain, but it has this really special ability to think about thinking. It can observe ourselves. It also, I mean, it does a lot of things. Um, it helps us stay in the window of tolerance, which is where we can connect with people. That's where we feel like ourselves. That's where we can think long-term. It's where we can think with nuance. We can have empathy. Um, there's a sense in which I, I believe it reflects our truest self when we have our prefrontal cortex online. Hmm. And so this is significant because once we are no longer in our window of tolerance, we do not have access to the part of ourselves that in a way makes us ourselves. <laughs> we are solely reacting from the lower parts of our brain whose main concerns are survival. And again, there's good to that. We need our, we need our survival instincts. Yeah. However, let's say you've had lots of little T trauma or big T trauma or just unaddressed issues, what happens is our window of tolerance actually gets smaller. So what that means is we oftentimes are perceiving experiences in everyday life as threats, even when maybe they're not actually a threat. So when you say, when you ask the question, what does a healing process look like? Yeah. This is an absolutely essential piece. And I teach this to pretty much all of my clients. Um, and, and this is a, a framework that I myself use because we, it's essential that we begin to, to get comfortable with the lay of the land of our body. Am I in my window or am I nearing the edge of my window of tolerance? Because that's the area in which we can try softer. <laughs> yeah. Once we're out of that window, we have so many less choices because at that point we're really coming from a reactive response. And I think there are different levels to that. And it, it's, there's a lot of nuance in which I won't go all into that here because I don't know that that, that necessarily helps, helps the listener. But I think what I would want to say is that one of the really essential pieces towards any type of healing is beginning to get curious mm -hmm. and pay attention to, to the signals that your body are giving you um, in different settings and experiences and just beginning to notice like what it feels like when you really feel like yourself. Yeah. When you're with someone and you're like, and you're able to laugh and be creative and, and all these things, there's, that's a pretty good clue that you're in your window. But let's say you, you're with somebody who makes you really anxious and you notice your heart rate starts to go up and, and, you're, and you're starting to sweat <laughs> and all these things. It's like, this is a clue that your body is actually perceiving something in the environment as threatening. And, if, and it, part of this journey is really just beginning to observe that. Sometimes we have the ability, and this is where sometimes it's really important to get with a therapist to help you navigate these. But we begin to ask the questions like, is this actually a threat right now? Or is it possible this reminds me of something in which I have experienced pain or wounding in the past and I can sort of help calm myself in the present but address that pain in a different space? Yeah. So this is this work. This is compassionate attention. This is saying, I hear you, body. Like, you're not, like, you're not crazy, body. I'm not just saying to my body, oh, knock it off. You're, oh, you again? 
<laughs> you again being annoying. I can't believe you're doing this again. No, your body is wise and it's giving you information. And sometimes that information is that in the present moment, there's a threat. And sometimes the information is it's responding to something that reminds you of a past threat. Yes. Yeah, it, it's, I, I really like that idea, window of tolerance. Uh, I've never mm-hmm. heard that before. And, and it's, um, as, as I've heard, heard it spoken about, and tell me if I'm, if I'm pointing toward the similar thing, is we were wired with these threat detectors in our brain. You call the lower part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a friend who refers to it as limbic land, referring to mm-hmm. the limbic system. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things were given to us because when caveman, cavewoman were going out on a hunt and mm-hmm. saber-toothed tiger jumped out of a cave and ate mm-hmm. one of them, mm-hmm. one of them got away, and for the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. they were on high alert walking past the mouth of the cave. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about, like, it does serve us well. It does. Listen, when... But at some point, if we evolve past it... Yeah. Um, we all of a sudden, are st- we still have these brains that we now, as we learn, are able to, mm-hmm. rather than they're mastering us, we begin to master it, is what I hear you saying. Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge that there are times we still really need this. Yeah. Meaning, if you are in front of a car that's about to hit you, your body, without a conscious thought, will do everything possible to save you. And it will probably mean you'll move as quick as you've ever moved out of the way of that car. So this is your lower brain responding without the top of your, your prefrontal cortex. This is a gift. This is a, this is a gift. If you are in a situation, um, a PTSD type of situation, your lower brain is full bore, doing everything possible to use all the energy of your body to make a decision in splits, a split second, mm. as fast as possible to keep you alive. So, I mean, we need this now, but what can happen is we, a lot of us are still operating out of our lower brain, even when we're safe. And that's when there's a problem. Yeah. That's where this whole posture of trying softer matters because we're unwinding the pain and the story so that we're gently bringing up the pain to the awareness of our top of our brain that can listen and say, sort of, you know, I sometimes call this, because a lot of my ex- pain happened in my childhood, mm-hmm. and a lot of my clients, and, and many people's, uh, early, like, they have a template for their pain from their childhood. Yeah. So I often use the, the framework that we're reparenting a younger part of ourself, uh, a part yeah. of ourself that is still holding a wound. Yeah, And so I love this too, you know, just from a faith perspective that for me, I believe God reparents me Yeah, and then I have the ability to actually reparent myself. Yeah, I get to steward the compassion that God has for me to myself. Yeah, And so this is this really beautiful process that there's, there's huge <laughs> ramifications because if the prefrontal cortex is online, that means we are in our window of tolerance, which means all systems are a go to allow pain to be processed in our body. That's the other significant thing about the prefrontal cortex being offline is that our body cannot process that pain because that's a sign that it's overwhelmed the nervous system's ability to cope. 
So that's how trauma gets stuck in the body, typically more of the right brain, which the right brain can't tell the difference between the past and the, and the present. So when we're triggered in oh. trauma, we are experiencing this moment as though it's the moment in which we originally experienced that pain. That is fascinating. And you, you said right at the beginning when we were talking about uh, you getting married in this room, mm. your husband telling you, take a picture of this. And you, you used two words. You said, this was before I knew anything about mindfulness and being mm. present. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about mindfulness in how that plays into all of this. Because, I mean, what you're talking about mm. is you've said things like seeing when you're getting near the edge mm-hmm. of that window of tolerance um, how does that play into it? And what are some of the things that mm-hmm. you've seen, maybe used personally mm-hmm. uh, or experienced that have been helpful in that? Yeah. Um, mindfulness is such a key part of the work um, that, that I do and that I help folks, you know, other folks to do. Because really, that's sort of what I mean when I say the prefrontal cortex is thinking about thinking. Mm-hmm. We're coming from the part of our brain that's able to observe it's it's like it's it's like looking down in a good way from almost like the watchtower of the upper part of our brain. Yeah. And this is helpful because like um, there's a woman, this, a great mindfulness teacher. I'm sure I'm not saying her name right, but Pima Chodron. Um, she has a great quote, and she says, um, "If you are the sky, you are the sky. Everything else, it's just the weather." And this is very much. What mindfulness is like, like we, who we are, our essential true selves, we are the sky. Like we don't change our inherent, valuable, worthy, beloved selves do not change. We are the sky, but everything else that comes in our emotions and our experiences, they're not, they're not bad. They just, they just change like the weather. Yeah. And so if we can observe it, like we're the sky, like what's the weather going to be like today? Oh, well, the weather's a little bit stormy. So what would I need since the weather's stormy? Mm-hmm. It's almost like that kind of um, advocating for ourselves that we recognize, um, oh, I'm with someone who makes me anxious. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe, you know what? In, in the here and now, I can recognize that I'm actually safe and I can, I can set boundaries. But because I know that, I am going to do some extra self-care. I am going to make sure that I can have some extra time to myself to just sort of let my nervous system unwind tonight. I am not going to take on that extra, um, you know, invitation someone gave me tonight because I need to, I recognize that this weather that's come in, it requires me to respond in a certain way. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, just with your question, so much of this work is... It is a very, um, it's really tapping into this gentle ability to observe ourselves from a non-judgmental posture mm-hmm. of saying, this is just, this is happening <laughs> for, for like, it is what it is for better, for worse. This yeah. is the experience. And, you know, I think that one thing I would want to just say that for those of us who've experienced a lot of trauma, who maybe have a lot of chronic little T trauma or big T trauma, the beginning to be mindful can be a journey. Oh, yes. <laughs> it is not necessarily easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And so one thing I really encourage folks to do um, 
like let's say you feel like you're either nearing the end of your window of tolerance mm-hmm. or let's say you begin to come from this inter- like you're trying to turn inward and for a lot of people that's actually really triggering mm. to turn inward there's a reason we don't go inward oh yes we don't go inward because it's painful mm-hmm. and the reason it's painful is because it felt overwhelming right so in order to unwind trauma we have to approach it differently we have to approach it with more resources and support than we had when we originally experienced it. So I think a great way, I just say that because, you know, if you might be listening and if that feels like overwhelming or too much, first of all, I just want to really normalize that. Yeah. Um, and, and a really good starter practice is something called grounding. And grounding is essentially using sensory information um, to help bring our body. It's a form of mindfulness, but it's a very specific kind of mindfulness hmm. where we're actually we're actually utilizing outside information versus inside information because outside information tends to be a little bit more soothing and calming. And so a way you can practice this is um, you know, you can name in your wherever you are, name five things you can see and really observe them. You know, like to name them and just really notice and observe the details. Um, a, a lot of times I say if it's possible to go outside, do that. Yeah. Because being outside in and of itself is a very like grounding practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the next thing is four things maybe that you could touch. So touch the ground, touch a leaf, <laughs> like touch pavement. Um, then three things maybe you can hear. Two things maybe you can smell, and if possible, one thing you can taste. And what this does is that um, it really allows our body to, it's like we're becoming hyper-present. Interesting. And we're com- becoming hyper-present in a way, hopefully to something that isn't triggering. Yeah. It's a lot of times it really brings our whole system back online, but in a way that hopefully feels more nurturing. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I want to reflect on one thing you said there. You talked about observing ourselves in a non-judgmental way. And I've shared this before um, in different contexts that um, I went to a therapist, and of course the, the question that's often asked is, why are you here? Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm tired of being angry. I don't want to be angry anymore. And the therapist said, oh, I love anger. It's my favorite emotion. <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, I need to go to a, another therapist. This is, like, anger is terrible. And what I've learned is anger. She talked about, she said, I realize it's like the biggest flashing red button on your emotional dashboard. Mm. And she said, but that's why I like it so much because it's actually, you can't hide it. Mm. And so you have to, like, you have to deal with it. Um, And what I've learned over the years is I'm either afraid of something Mm. or I feel wounded. Mm -hmm. That's where the anger comes from. And the, the fear is often connected to things that happened years ago that are not true anymore, that are not. And so um, for those of you listening, that whole idea, what, what I've seen so much is I was judging my anger because the system that I was in said anger is not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're angry, stop being angry. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing of like, why are you angry? There was no curiosity with it. Yeah. Um, and so it is, yeah, that... Such an important piece. I'm so glad you said that. Mm. Observing without judgment. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is happening. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, 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 longer, the longer I've been on that healing journey and mm-hmm. continue on that healing journey, the quicker I'm able to go, oh, the anger's coming. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, what hurts? What are you afraid of? What do you need to name? Yeah. Uh, and there's so much, so much there. You, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about, mm-hmm. I said you wrote as a therapist, mm-hmm. as a trauma survivor, and you already said you, you're writing as a mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, me included, lots of parents uh, listen to this. And so I'd love, love for you to share just a little bit about um, what, what would you share to, to moms and to dads who are mm-hmm. listening? Um, I mean, you've talked about how kids are wired for us, mm-hmm. um, which kind of makes the burden both more beautiful and a little bit more terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would you share with us? Mm-hmm. Uh, some things that maybe we can incorporate um, as parents into our journeys with our kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is such an important perspective. And I think my experience is that a lot of people, especially if they've experienced what I would say is not good enough parenting, yeah. um, they worry about how they will then affect their children. And oh, yes, 100%. Yeah, and I think I just, you know, I want to validate. I think that's really normal. You know, I've had those same, I've had those same fears. And Yep, I'm with you. Yeah, but, I, but I, what I, I think is really cool about this work and that I just love, honestly, is that what we know is that doing our own emotional work really pays dividends. Um, even though we're still, still in process and even oh, though yeah. we're still imperfect, that there's a, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, this is really fascinating to me that when we are connected to our own emotional experience in our body, like there's this literal something that Dan Siegel, who's a, an amazing psychiatrist, he calls it the resonance circuits. And this resonance circus, circuits is what allows us to attune to other people. Mm-hmm. This is what empathy is sort of about. Yeah. We att- like empathy is about being able to feel with other people. And the other side of that coin is that when we're disconnected from our own experience, we have much less ability to attune to other people. And so the costs are high when we don't do our own emotional work. Yeah. And, and for lots of different reasons, you know, yeah. f- because of trauma or because of various wounds or because we've been socialized that it's selfish. There's so many reasons we don't do it. And so I think it's really helpful to hear, ultimately, this isn't selfish. Yeah. This is maybe one of the most generous things you could ever do. Yeah. Um, so when we are with our children, attunement is the framework for attachment. Mm-hmm. because an, an attachment is what is sort of the building blocks of how we interact with ourselves and others and, and even God. And so the way our caregivers respond to us and our needs and our pain essentially forms our attachment style. And so if your caregiver is not attuned to you, that will be reflected in your own attachment style. But if your caregiver, even with their own wounds, is in touch with their experience, and then can be more attuned to their kiddos, essentially. And so when we do something that, you know, in in this, the language that's used in psychology is like when we create a rupture, essentially when we hurt our kids, when we're misattuned, when we say something that's not okay, when we're not there for them, when we should be, if when we, we are more likely to repair the rupture and that, that has huge ramifications because that um, it's not about being perfect. Yeah. It's a 
about being attuned and humble and having the self-awareness enough to see that when we've caused pain, we go back and repair it. Yeah. And that's really what secure attachment ultimately is, is really rooted in, um, that, that parents are good enough in the sense that they are, they are tracking enough with themselves and, the, and their kids that they have the ability to respond in ways that are, um, like there's enough emotional intelligence there mm-hmm. that they then think about, like if they're in pain, how would they want to be comforted? And so like then they can comfort their kids that way, you know? Right. Or they may ask the question, um, you know, when mommy said that, how, you know, how did that make you feel? And, and what would you need from mommy? Yeah. H- how can mommy help now? Because so often if we're not doing our, our work, we don't have the tolerance to hear mm-hmm. that we've caused pain. Right. And when we don't have the tolerance to hear it, the pain gets minimized and it gets pushed down. And that's what creates wounds. Yeah. I'll also add, um, my wife and I say that we're not saving for our kids' college education, but for their therapy. <laughs> I actually say that too. <laughs> At this point, I'm sending them to you. I'm sitting here. I'm like, I got, this is like a free counseling session mm-hmm. for me and people who are listening. Um, talk a little bit as, as, we, as we wrap our time up. I, I know faith is, is extremely important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and how is this undergirded, supported, mm. woven its way all through the way you view yourself, the world, the, the practice that you, that you have, the writing that you've done with your, mm-hmm. the book, Try Softer. Um, mm. How yeah. is that uh, integrated in all of that work? Yeah. I mean, I think the high-level answer for sure is I believe God is the author of our healing. Mm. And I believe that, w- that he will use whatever means necessary, um, including and not limited to (laughs) therapy and potentially medication or things like EMDR or teaching people about um, non-judgmental attention or mindfulness or grounding. Like these are these beautiful tools that we have um, that I really believe like our bodies are created to heal. Mm. Like, Like science shows us that. And to me, I'm like, wow. Now that's a miracle. Yeah. Like that's literally a miracle to me um, that, that God created. Like when we get a cut, our bodies heal. Yeah. When we have trauma, our bodies are constantly, like really that's what a trigger is. That's an invitation to, from our body to say, this is not finished. I need more healing. Yeah. And so for me, whether I'm explicitly talking about my faith or not, this is, always comes back to goodness, that it's restoring dignity. Um, It's restoring, you know, the Imago Dei, the the image of God, that there is, that I think people have inherent value and that we're worthy of being able to live and make choices from a place where we're our true selves. And I believe that that's where we truly connect with God too. Like Mm. when we're in our window of tolerance, not from a place of fear, not from a place of disconnection and dissociation and, oh, I guess I'll make, you know, I guess I'll follow you, God, because I'm so traumatized. It's like God invites us into this, like this deep level of wholeness. And so for me, there's all these layers. There's all these layers that it's like a spiritual, it's a, it's a physical, it's an emotional, it's a relational wholeness. And, you know, sometimes, 
sometimes I, I get to talk about that more explicitly and sometimes yeah. I don't. Yeah. And both are good, yeah. you know, and both are an honor. And one of the things that I, I have come to say is that I believe that healing is always sacred work. Yes. Like in, in, in every space and sphere. Yeah. It's sacred. That's awesome. Um, what, what's the, if you had to boil it down to one hope, or one thing that you want this book to do, and I we, we said this before we started recording that, you know, authors are supposed to say I I hope it really just meets one person, and I was always like I want it to meet thousands of per, per people. So, but what, what's mm. the what's the hope that you have for the book? Mm. Yeah, I think I'm gonna give I'm gonna go and say I have two two layers to the hope. Yeah, and the first is that it would begin to give language to a culture. And, and both wider culture and particularly also Christian culture to, to pain mm-hmm. in a new way that people who have maybe never been able to articulate that sense that things are not okay, to be able to talk about it with, with a, new, um, a new type of validation. Because what we know is that even honoring and validating our pain is a type of integration. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that is a, that's a really big goal for this book is that it just would create some language that normalizes these experiences, that brings it out of the sphere of like every, you know, no, folks don't want to talk about trauma. And I think it's time. We, we need to. Yeah. Like we need to be talking about the way that our stories are informing how we're showing up in the world. Mm. Um, this is, I think, a vital part of, of moving forward yeah. as a culture in a different way. And then I think the second part is, is that I really hope and pray that folks who read this book would come to see themselves as worthy mm. of compassionate attention in the same way that God already sees them as profoundly worthy yeah. of that compassionate attention. I love that. That's great. Um, how can our listeners fi- learn more about you, your work? Obviously, where can they find the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, a lot, you can find me at ondicolber.com. And one thing to know is that um, if you sign up for my, my newsletter, one of the things I send out is a video that walks folks through grounding. And so I really oh, go nice. through that. And I try to do about a once a month um, I call it a resourcing video where I yeah. send it out and I really um, go through the video with people. And a lot of this is just around emotional regulation and things like that. So, yeah. you know, if that sounds helpful, feel free to sign up for that. And then you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Andy Colber. And yeah, you can find my book wherever books are sold right wherever now. Wherever fine books are sold. Yes. yes. And for those of you listening, uh, there will be a link to Andy's website uh, in the notes uh, on the uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening on. So you can check there for the uh, episode description and click there and go right to her website. But Andy, thank you for being here on the Changing Faith podcast to talk about Try Softer. Absolutely. It was it's a been pleasure. wonderful. <laughs> and for those of you who have joined with us again today, thank you once mm-hmm. again uh, for being here on another episode of the Changing Faith podcast My hope is that you would learn and come to see that we are invited not to try harder, but to try softer. That we would learn together of the God of love who invites us toward healing and wholeness. And I encourage you uh, to pick up Andy's book because I know it will be for all of us another step, no matter where we find ourselves in the current moment, 
It'll be another step in our continued journey. So that is it for today's episode. Once again, thank you for joining with us. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.